Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the doctrine of God's incomparability. Nothing can compare to God, which is often associated, if you look at these systematic theologies, typically these systematic theologies will start off with a discussion of the knowledge of God, what we can know about God and in what fashion. And often this is attributed to God this doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. We can't understand anything as it relates to God. And they, they seem to find proof texts in the Bible for this. Anytime the Bible says something like, uh, to whom will you liken God? To whom will he, you compare him? And nothing compares to God. This type of language in the Bible is hijacked and used to prove this concept. This is a very Platonistic concept, by the way. This is uh, Plotinus when he's talking about the one that all we could say about the one is we can't even say that it is the one. As he Plotinus says, once you utter the one, say nothing more. We can't add any concept to God. We can't think of God in any positive respect. God is so far above us. He's above predicates. God is unknowable, unknowable and incomprehensible. And this is proof texts by these statements throughout the Bible that God is incomparable. God cannot be compared to anything. So let's take a look at some people doing that. I got pulled up Louis Burkhoff, and this is in his Systematic Theology, and he has a section called The Knowability of God. If you look at the little scroll bar, this is right at the beginning of his theology. Again, Systematic Theologies tend to start with God's knowability, and they, they tend to start off with this Platonistic concept that God cannot be known in positive senses. Of course, they'll, they'll add on like we see Burkhoff here. God is incomprehensible, but yet knowable. Oh, yeah, okay. That, that definitely makes sense. I'm sure there's a combination of words that you use below this statement that will prove both that God is incomprehensible and yet knowable. I'm sure there's some combination of words that adds up to it. But let's look at his proof texting of Isaiah 40, 18. The Christian church confesses, on the one hand, that God is the incomprehensible one. Oh, that one language looks pretty familiar. I wonder, wonder where we saw that one language before, huh? But also, on the other hand, that he can be known and that knowledge of him is an absolute requisite unto salvation. It recognizes the force of Zophar's question, can thou, by searching, find out God? Can thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Job 11.7. You know, Job's a pretty good thing. If you ever want theology, uh, quote Job's friends. It's a great idea. And it feels that it has no answer to the question of Isaiah. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Isaiah 40.18. Skipping forward. The two ideas reflected in these passages were always held side by side in the Christian church. The early church fathers spoke of the invisible God as an unbegotten, nameless, eternal, incomprehensible, unchangeable being. They advanced very little beyond the old Greek idea that the divine being is absolute, attributeless existence. At the same time, they also confessed that God revealed himself in the Logos and can therefore be known unto salvation. So that's Lewis Burkhoff. I also got William Shedd pulled up, and I got this actually in our quick verse reference in the God is Open on the quick reference verse page that talks about incomparability. 
because just of how these how these phrases the, these terms are used when when the classical theists run across them in the Bible. Here's William Shedd. It is overlooked by Kant and Fisher. This is a different Fisher, not me. And by all those who reason upon this line of analogy, that the idea of God or the absolutely perfect is unique and solitary. God is not only unus, but unicus. There is no parallel to him. No true analogy can be found. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? Isaiah 40, 18. To employ analogical reasoning in a case where all analogies fail was the heir of Guinillo and has been repeated from his day to this. William Shedd, Dogmatic Theology. We'll quote just a little bit from Plotinus so we can see the parallel of thought and how the concepts mirror each other. Just what uh, Shedd just said, let's listen to Plotinus and compare. Thus the one is in truth beyond all statement. Any affirmation is of a thing, but the all-transcending, resting above, even the most august divine mind, possesses alone of all true being, and is not a thing among things. We can give it no name, because that would imply predication. We can but try to indicate in our own feeble way something concerning it, when in our perplexity we object. So we see there that Plotinus is really talking about the same thing that William Shedd talks about. And they each have about the same contempt for anyone who disagrees, who wants to talk about God as analogous to anything else. Um, they, they get really defensive. They like to call names. And they're very mad about this. But William Shedd, well, of course, Plotinus was not a Christian, so he's not going to be proof texting the Bible to try to prove his theology, but William Shedd does, Louis Burkhoff does, and other systematic theologians. And again, this is what Isaiah 40:18 says, to whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare him to? And so just think about this. This is a rhetorical question. Of course, the rhetorical answer is no one. No one compares to God. But how is this language being used? Do we have any indication it's in this negative sense? in which God is a species unique in a sense that nothing um, is analogous to him in any sense? Is that how this language is being used? Uh, we have nothing from the text to indicate that. In fact, in fact, we're talking about narrative deconstruction, how uh, the Calvinist narratives are failing. In Isaiah 40 and, and elsewhere in Isaiah 40, we have a lot of positive statements about God describing what he's talking about. If we look at the context, we see what God's purpose is, who he's talking to, what he's trying to convince them of, and how he's trying to convince them. He is interacting with them. His relation to the world is described in the context. And it's not a negative relationship like William Shedd wants to grab from this verse. We turn to 1 Kings 3.13. This is one of several verses in the Bible, which also have incomparability texts. But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. These texts are not about, they're not about God. They're not about Yahweh. This, is, this one's about Solomon. This is God talking to Solomon. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. 
Now, this language of comparability, no other king compares to Solomon. This doesn't mean that he's a species unique and there's no king that you could even kind of like, oh, he's got 10 times the riches of this other guy. That's not what it's about. It's about uh, the current status, that no one's his equal, no one's besides him. You shall have no other god besides Yahweh. You should not treat any other god on equal footing with Yahweh. No one is at Yahweh's level when all things are considered. That's the language of comparability being used in 1 Kings 3.13. No other king is on level with King Solomon. This language of comparability is not a species unique. Nothing else can compare. And so there's no reason to import those concepts into language about Yahweh's incomparability. If you want to, if you want to claim that those Verses are about those concepts. You're going to have to prove it from the context. And the context screams, screams against that taking of those verses. Let's turn to Act and Being. Act and Being, Towards a Theology of Divine Attributes by Colin Guttman. This is what he writes. Our second example is the second Isaiah's critique of the idols. In this, the theology of divine omnipotence, omnipotence, implicit in Genesis is made definitively explicit. In the account in chapter 5-5 of the power of God's word to achieve what it sets out to do, at it's 55, they put a space between there, 55, we have a real link with Genesis' account of creation by word. But we find also, earlier in the chapters attributed to the prophet, apparent support for negative theology. The question is repeated, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare with him? Isaiah 40-18. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. Verse 25. The form of the question might clearly expect to answer nothing, and yet the whole passage is set in a context of a revealed theology of creation in which affirmations of a wholly positive kind are made about God's power as it is manifest in creative action. Remember in Isaiah 40, God counts the water. God knows how much water there is because he counts it. He names stars. He, he, he calls forth armies. He calls people to repentance. He reminds people of his power acts. God is related to creation. God has relationships to creation. This is not negative theology being expressed here. This is positive theology. The language of comparability and incomparability is of a positive kind. Uh, this is me talking right now, so we'll go back to what this guy writes. Yet the whole passage is set in the context of a revealed theology of creation, in which affirmations of a wholly positive kind are made about God's power, as it is manifest in creative action. The God of this writer is known through his redemptive historical action, and it is this which founds Isaiah's confidence that God is Israel's goal, or next of kin, the word that has come to be translated as Redeemer. And so to form the basis for a whole theology of God's holy love, this is an image, concrete and personal, with which God can be indeed compared. Drawing on the tradition of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt, the prophet compares God to the one whose responsibility it was to redeem a family member from slavery, so that his critical theology is only directed against the idols and does not provide the basis of the kind of independent negative theology which we meet in the tradition. So what this means is, is our knowledge of God, even in the statements of incomparability, are of a wholly positive kind. 
God is related to creation. God is intricately connected to creation. And that's the context that we find this language in. There's nothing to suggest this negative theology that people want to import onto these statements. They'll say, oh, God is, uh, you know, this transcendent thing. And, and uh, therefore, anytime the Bible says anything about God, it says God knows all things. We have to import our ideas of what transcendence would require out of those attributes. Oh, it's this immediate knowledge that uh, instantly pops to God's mind without perception. God knows instantly all true facts because in this way, God's uh, knowledge is not analogous to ours in the least. That, that's that's uh, besides the fact that every time the Bible talks about mechanisms of God acquiring knowledge, it's always in a positive way. God's eyes watch, watch the ways of man. Uh, God tests the heart to know. It says that God knows the hearts. How? It says throughout, God tests to know. Literally, uh, God tests to know. Uh, just the, put it in the Bible search and you'll, you'll get hits. It's a consistent motif throughout the Bible. God's watching of the world. God's testing to know. In Isaiah, God's knowledge is based on God's power. God knows because he said and he will do. It's a knowledge of a positive sort. It's not this knowledge based on uh, intuition, ungenerated knowledge within himself of all true propositions. This is the type of knowledge that the Bible is describing. And so it is a mistake to try to take modern theological concepts based on concepts of uh, incomparability that are defined by Neoplatonic tradition and try to use them as interpretive metrics over the rest of the Bible in which we're taking verses inconsistently. The same verses applied to man will take in, we'll use just our normal reading comprehension, but when we come across those same phrases applied to God, we will apply our new super spiritual meaning that's nowhere apparent in the text, and uh, there's nothing, nothing hinting that the more natural reading that we just used on the other verse applied to man, why that's not more appropriate to the context. We need to compartmentalize our uh, implied theology, the theology that we want to bring to the text, we need to read as historians. What did the author probably believe? And none of these authors seem to have any conception of negative theology. They weren't steeped in Platonic traditions. Paul arguably might have uh, had some conception of Greek ideas. He's arguing in Athens and so far forth. He's making references. But none of these other authors seem to have very much familiarity with with uh, paganism, with uh, Greek philosophy, with negative attributes, with pure actuality, pure being theology, none of them have this. They, they, they don't talk like it. They don't treat God in that sense. They treat him as a person, a person with relationships, a person who can do things, a person who interacts, a person that we trust due to his character, not because of the metaphysics of what makes him, makes him uh, God. Uh, the, not the God-making properties, that you don't see those assumptions built into the Bible. Anyways, that's just what I wanted to talk about is this language of incomparability, how it's used, how it's not uh, being derived, the use, the, the misapplication of proof texts as found in the Bible, the assumptions brought into those proof texts, and how those mis misapplications of proof, proof texts negatively influence other ways in other spots that we read the Bible. We can't be importing this theology that's just not present there in the text. Anyways, questions and comments, put that down below. Thank you for listening.